So uh, last night was Halloween, and uh, like many of you with uh, small children, you did the whole Halloween thing as much as you didn't want to and as much as you couldn't stand it. You felt like that's just what a good mom or a good dad does unless you're legalistic and you're thinking, what a terrible mom and terrible dad who would celebrate Halloween with their children. Uh, but we celebrated Halloween last night. We were at some friend's house, and uh, the boys were doing their thing, and so Shepard, Grace, and Alice and myself were there. And uh, towards the end of the night, I went into the kitchen at our friend's house, and one of our middle schoolers uh, was in the kitchen at the same time that I was. And he looked at me, he said, man, I am so bummed that tomorrow this series is over. And I thought to myself, Reese, you may be the only human being in our church who feels that way. Uh, everybody else is looking forward to this sucker being over and done with, put it in the grave, bury it and throw the dirt on top. Uh, and then he looks at me and says, hey, you know, just a question, just tell me, just tell me, are you just gonna tell him tomorrow? Are you just gonna tell him? Are you gonna tell him who you're really for? Are you just gonna throw it out there? And I thought, no, no, but then I got home and I thought about it and I, I did early voting. Uh, so I, I went the other day, I got a quick haircut and, and then I went to go vote and I even got the sticker. I didn't post a selfie, so I don't know if it counts or not, but uh, I, I did vote and, and so I, I did my civic duty. And so I thought last night, I said, maybe I should just tell them. Maybe, you know, in the last week they've had to sit there and listen and it's been uncomfortable and a little bit, you know, ruffled some feathers along the way. Maybe I should just, just as a gift. So I thought I would, I would tell you as much as I could tell you about who I voted for. And this year for 2020 for the United States uh, presidential race, I voted for an old, rich, white guy. <laughs> and um, I know that doesn't tell you much, except I didn't vote for Kanye, I guess. I, I didn't throw my support there. So, but that's about as, as clear as we're going to get, because that really that's the only two choices we have. Uh, so, uh, beyond that, I'm not going to try to tell you who to vote for on Tuesday. Many of you, uh, maybe even most of you have already voted, uh, so I'm not going to do that, and that's not what this series was intended uh, to do. Anyway, now, uh, when it comes to one of these, uh, everybody has one. Everybody has one. If you're not sure what one of these are, it's a filter, and you need to go home straight away and change yours. Uh, and that's a good public service announcement, but I'm not talking about uh, your home HVAC unit. I'm not talking about the unit at the office, and I'm not talking about the air filter in your car, but everybody has a filter, and everywhere you go and everything you hear and everything you see passes through that filter. And that filter is in between your two ears. It's your mental filter. It's your psychological filter. It's your experience filter. It's the filter that you carry around everywhere you go and everything you see and everything you hear from church on Sunday to sitting in your living room with friends, to being at the office, to being in the community, to watching the news, to listening to political speeches, everything you see and hear passes through that filter and it gets altered a little bit if we're not careful. And that's the nature of filters. It cleans things out that needs to be cleaned out and it lets you know what supposedly needs to pass through, pass through. But the filters that we carry around, these mental uh, filters, these psychological filters, they help us establish what we perceive as reality. We listen and we watch and as those things around us pass through the filter, our mind does what it does and it begins to try to grasp what we believe and perceive to be what is real, reality. And out of that perceived reality comes our emotions, our mood, our actions and reactions. 
And so filters are a really big deal. And experts say that we start carrying these around at a very early age. And we get them from many places. Among many, or among some of those are our parents, our values and beliefs, our culture, uh, intentions, expectations and mood, our personal prejudice, uh, all of these things. And there's other things that I could talk about, but, but among the things that form your filter, these are the big ones. Uh, for better or worse, uh, most of us inherited many of our beliefs uh, from our parents. Our first interaction with humanity was through and with our parents. And everything that we consider to be connected to our most basic self, our faith, our values, our politics, the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we think about others, the way that we think about the world, all of that was deposited into us at a very early age by our parents and it became part of the filter. Uh, Whatever it was that your parents told you about life, it's in there. Uh, Whatever your parents told you about people, it's in there. Whatever your parents told you about certain people, it's in there. What your parents told you about rich people, what they're really like, or poor people, why they're really poor, or black people, or white people, or red people, or yellow people, or whatever they told you about the world around you, it's down in there. So there's our parents, and then there's our values, uh, whether adopted or inherited, that's part of our filter. You listen to sermons through this filter. Uh, You listen to friends through your filter. You listen to the people that are closest to you through these filters. Uh, Your definitions of good and bad, your definition of good and evil, your definition of what is right and what is wrong, all of that is part of your filter and it shapes the way that you perceive the world around you and it helps for you and it helps me and it helps us to establish our idea of what we think reality is, which explains why oftentimes we're drawn to people who value and believe the same things as us and why we are a bit off-put by people who don't believe and value the same things as us. And so our values form uh, this filter. And that's why that, uh, you know, not only that, but we have culture, uh, the culture you grew up in, the culture in your home, the culture, you know, maybe the part of the country you grew up in. Uh, sometimes those cultures can be very different. Uh, every culture has a way it communicates, uh, the way it behaves, uh, the things that it thinks are normal or abnormal, uh, acceptable or unacceptable, what's rude and what's not rude. Uh, some of you, you would hear someone say something very direct and you would think, wow, thank you, that was helpful. Some of you would hear someone say something direct to you and you would think that's the rudest human being I've ever met in my entire life. And it's part of the filter. You can hear the same thing as someone else and come to two very different conclusions. And then, then there's our intentions. Our intentions are a big deal because you know, what we want to happen, uh, our expectations, what we assume will happen, the mood that we're in, all of that affects how we hear things. Um, what we expect to happen, what we hope doesn't happen. Uh, all of that is part of your filter and you pack it around everywhere you go and it's a part of everything you see and everything you hear. And then the uncomfortable one, the personal prejudice, and we all have them, we all have them. And through the personal filter of, of prejudices and different prejudices, we hear and see the world around us. And, and those prejudices can be very different. It can be racial. It can be you know, based on someone's appearance, how they're dressed or not dressed or how well kept they are, or how fit they are or not fit they are. It can be economic prejudice. It can be educational prejudice. It can be political prejudice. And, and based on those prejudices, you can discount someone or you can give someone too much credit. And oftentimes when it comes to this, we do this subconsciously. And then again, we bond with people who share our prejudices and we tend to isolate from people who don't share our prejudice. So the point is this here in the last week of this series. 
listening is hard work. Hearing, not so much. You know, you've, you've got all that stuff in your ear. God put it there. God designed it. And, and hearing is not very difficult. But listening is hard work. Uh, hearing is physiological, but listening is psychological. It's, it's mental. It's, it's effort. And, and here's why this is a big deal, especially as we get ready to put a bow on this series and move on to something different next week. Your filter and mine influences what we pay attention to, what we choose to pay attention to, and what we choose not to pay attention to. Uh, it, it determines the, the, the information or the data that we assign greater value or lesser value to. Uh, our filters can assume that we know what we don't know or presume to know what we can't know. Uh, we can listen to someone on television and we can say, ah, crook, it's a crook, it's just a crook. I mean, I, I don't, they're just a liar and you've never met them. You never had a conversation with them, but part of the filter is you assume and presume that you know what you don't know and what you can't know. And our filters cause us to take everything that's happened in the past and project it on the present. Uh, it causes us to edit certain things in and maybe edit certain things out so that it fits our presuppositions and our pre-existing narratives. Uh, thus explains why many of you could come to the same sermon, the same series, and at the end of it, walk away with two very different conclusions about what you thought the whole thing was about. That's the thing about filters, because not everything we think we hear is actually what's being said. There can be such a thing as miscommunication, and it's not always on behalf of the communicator. Uh, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Sometimes we hear things that weren't actually said, and it's because of our filter. It's because of the day of the week. It's because of what's been going on. And all of a sudden, we're locked inside a perceived reality that may not be reality at all. And all of a sudden, we're responding to a fake reality, a false one. And all of our emotions and actions and reactions are locked into something that isn't even real because we've not heard actually what was said. Take, for example, the series. Over the past uh, five weeks, uh, everyone who's been listening has been listening through one of their filters. And that's just the way it is. If I had been sitting where you are, I would have had my own filter as well. I wrote with a filter. I communicated with my own filter, uh, which explains why half the people uh, think that I am absolutely behind Donald J. Trump and the other half thinks I'm for Joe Biden. Uh, it explains why some folks have gotten very upset in our church at the video, the bumper we call it, that rolls out before the sermon, uh, the Run With Horses series, because uh, many people were up in arms because they said it is so clearly biased against President Trump. And then some folks said, no, we're upset because it so clearly makes light of the virus. And then some folks, because we've talked about race and because of some of the footage, have said, you're absolutely standing behind the organization Black Lives Matter because everybody's hearing this thing through a filter. I mentioned a verse out of Deuteronomy about justice for the foreigner. And some folks got very upset and said, I was declaring my position for open borders and obviously aligning myself against the Southern wall at the border. I mentioned pro-life and I get accused of being too Republican and being a bit harsh and uncaring for folks who that may be part of their story. For others, I'm weak and spineless because I haven't mentioned it nearly enough. Uh, last week, I referenced history. First century Christians, they wanted healthcare available for all people, just not Roman soldiers and the Roman aristocracy. And some folks said, see, I can't believe that he went so far to say that he was for universal healthcare. And if he's for universal healthcare, he has to be a Democrat. He must be leaning blue. I, I mentioned capitalism and you know, I don't care about 
the poor. And, and everybody listens through a filter. And some folks think, oh, you're moving too far left. You, you, you know, the staff, our staff's been accused of being liberal because we, we wear masks and take it seriously. And we've asked other people to take it seriously because that's what our government has asked to do. Some folks said, oh, you know, we're not coming back. We're not gonna listen to that anymore because obviously the church is being steered in the wrong direction. Filters are a big deal because they help us hear what's being said, but they don't always assure us that we are hearing what's being said. This is why the scriptures have a lot to say about this matter. Listen to what, listen to what Solomon said. He said, let the wise listen and add to their learning. So if you wanna learn, listen. L listen to what he says in chapter 18. He says, to answer before listening, that's folly and shame. He says, if you jump to a conclusion without all the information, that's foolish. If you've already decided where you stand without investigating and without pursuing more knowledge about the matter, he said, that's foolish. And the only way that you can come to more understanding and the only way that you can collect information is by listening and being prodded. And then James, the half-brother Jesus, he said this, he said, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to what? Help me out. Listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. angry. In other words, you can take all the many verses that the scriptures talk about listening. I gave you a little sampling of it. But if you wanna learn, you have to learn to listen. If you wanna learn, you have to learn to listen. It's the only way you can gain insight. It's the only way to deepen perspective. It's the only way that you may ever change your opinion. If you've never changed your opinion about anything meaningful, that's probably a problem in and of itself. Listening is how we hear stories from people who don't share our perspective and we understand a different perspective better because we hear their story. We ask questions and then we shut up and we listen. We research, we entertain different perspectives. We gather people close to us that don't see the world the way we see it. We refuse to be dogmatic because dogmatic people don't learn. Dogmatic people are talking heads and they just regurgitate what somebody else has told them to be true, that they've never sat down to try to figure out whether it was true or not for themselves. And as Christians, listening is a way that we search for and find what is true and what is not. So the idea is we all need to listen better because what we hear isn't always what's being said. Now, with that being said, today's not really a sermon as much as it is the conclusion of the sermon. I told you week one, it's an introduction, not a sermon. Today is really the conclusion, so not really a sermon. If this sermon was all together, it'd be really long, but this would be the last portion of it. And I want you to know, because this is important to me, I didn't do this series to convince you how conservative I am or how progressive I am. I didn't do this series to convince you that I agree with you. I didn't do this series to convince you that you and I are on the same page. I did this series to assure that you and I are on the same page as much as possible with Jesus. I did this series to make sure that we as a church, that we as believers are on the same page as the scripture because that's what's most important. So where you think I'm at on the matter matters less to me than where we actually stand together as it relates to where Jesus stands. Because I think that the important thing is that we stand where Jesus stands on things and that we try to align ourselves as closely as possible to what the scriptures say about the things that we're talking about in the political world you know, in the day that we're living. So I don't want you to miss the entire point of the series. I want you to be able to hear what we're saying and hear what is actually intended to be said. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. 
I want you as much as possible, think about your filter for just a moment. You're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're a little bit libertarian, you're, you're, you've had a bad month, you've had a bad year, you're just, you're, you, know, you can't really trust your filters right now because they're kind, of, they're kind of off balance and you're not really sure if you're hearing what's real or what's not real. I, I need you as much as possible in this last segment of this last installment of this series. I want you just to do away with your filter as much as possible. And I want us to think like Jesus followers for just a moment. Because Jesus is a filter that trumps all other filters. And no, that's not a subliminal message. <laughs> Jesus is the filter that trumps all other filters. We, we march to the beat of his drum. We pledge allegiance to him first and everything else second. This is how the first Christians that we talked about last week, this is how they changed the world. They didn't miss what Jesus said. They listened and heard what Jesus said. And because of it, they took every opportunity to further the kingdom of God and its values and its ethic. Now they weren't perfect. They were like you, like me, they're not superheroes. They were human beings and they screwed up. They got it wrong lots and lots of times, but they refused to let go of faith. And though they stumbled and they fell down and they made a mess of things from time to time, they stood up in the mess and they kind of tried to shake it off and walk forward. That's our heritage, that's our lineage as Christians. We, we're not perfect, we're not gonna get it perfect. We're not gonna bat a thousand. There's gonna be a learning curve. There's gonna be times that we saw it different. There's gonna be times we saw it wrong. There's gonna be times that we were immature. There was gonna be times that we overreacted. It's all gonna be part of our story. But the important thing is as much as possible to take what Jesus said and to hear it. And that's what they did. And as I said last week, that's the reason they elevated women and children and gave them dignity and worth. That's the reason they built the hospitals and they were for education for all. They inspired ideas like capitalism out of personal responsibility. They sought higher standards of justice. They, they deconstructed classism as much as possible. They inspired the abolishment of slavery. They furthered science because they wanted to know as much about the world around them that God created as they could. They, they pleaded for the advancement of the arts and for literature. And they ultimately, they were able to surface out of the teachings of the scripture and out of the teachings of Jesus and out of the teachings of the New Testament, this ethic that's very important to all of us, this idea of freedom for all. And they pursued that, freedom for all, dignity for all, life for all, love for all. And out of that movement, because they heard what Jesus said, they understood the point of following Jesus. And the point of following Jesus is this, follow Jesus, influence others to follow Jesus and make the world better along the way. Let's all just say that out loud to make sure we're on the same page. Follow Jesus, influence others to follow Jesus and make the world better along the way. Now it's not as easy as saying it and it's certainly not as easy just to put it out there and speak it and think, wow, that sounds great. Uh, this is difficult work and this is hard and this is messy. And this is part of our calling. This is the essence of our calling as Jesus followers, to live out the values that he has passed on to us because we are part of a creation that is becoming new. All things are becoming new. The revolution of the new creation started at the, at the resurrection. The winds of the future kingdom have already began to blow. We are the salt that holds back decay. We're the light that holds back the darkness. We are the fragrance of life among the stench of death. And we go through this world extending compassion, extending grace, seeking justice, 
being champions of things that are true, sharing good news and doing good deeds for people. That, that's who we are, that's what we do, that's what we're supposed to do. That was the vision that Jesus had for you and for me. And that's the reason the New Testament, it really doesn't know how to describe it all the time because there's so many facets to life and it's a little bit complicated and sometimes we have to think about what this looks like on any given day in any given situation. And so the New Testament oftentimes doesn't offer a lot of clarity, it just uses a big generic term called good. Listen to this, this, this is how the New Testament puts this. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Paul would say somewhere else, he says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. So retribution, revenge, not the way we go, but always strive to do what is good. Strive because it's not easy. Strive, you gotta give effort. Strive, it's gotta be conscious and intentional for each other and for everybody else. He said again in a second letter, as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Why did he say that? Because sometimes we get tired of doing good. Sometimes we get exhausted with doing good because doing good doesn't always seem to help. Doing good doesn't always seem to make a difference. He told Timothy, he says, command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and to be willing to share. Uh, the writer of Hebrews put it this way. He says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Now, good deeds, good works is the way of the kingdom. That's life inside the kingdom of God. And every time you at work, at home, abroad, doesn't matter, every time in every place you show compassion, you express generosity, you extend dignity, you bring justice. When you hold on to grace without letting go of truth and you hold on to truth without letting go of grace, every time you extend mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it, every time you prefer someone else over yourself, every time you invite someone to follow Jesus and follow in the steps of your faith, that's doing good. That's the New Testament idea of being good. You, you build a bridge to someone who's ostracized and oppressed. That's doing good. You show hospitality to a stranger. That's doing good. You decide that you're going to do what's best for somebody else, though you don't feel like it's the best thing for you because that's the way of the kingdom. Every time you invest in somebody else to make them better or to make them stronger, every time you meet a physical need or an emotional need, you are fulfilling the values and the ethic of the kingdom. Every time you speak up for someone who can't or stand up for someone who is powerless, you have done the good thing. You have represented the kingdom of God. You have brought the kingdom of God near. You have planted a seed and you have embraced the idea of a future harvest. That's the New Testament concept of following Jesus. It is working itself out in every facet of life. It is working itself out every day in the muck and the mire and the mess of your life, my life, beyond all the personal garbage and all the past garbage and all the future garbage. We're trying to just plow all that aside as much as we can and live out what we've been called to live. Though oftentimes we feel as though it's above our pay grade. And so Jesus becomes our filter. The scriptures become our filter that replaces all other filters. And the question that helps clarify this, this is not my question. Andy Stanley came up with this question years ago, and it really is, I, 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 I would love to come up with something original that's better, but I can't, and this is as good as it gets. He says the question that captures all of this is, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? In 2020, right now, in this election, what does love require of me? Because, this is, this is a penetrating question, and this is a question that is a bit uncomfortable. It's not sappy, it's not sentimental. This is a willful choice of saying, what does love require of me right now? 
And this begins to steer us in the direction of doing good for others. This begins to steer us in the direction of classifying love as the most important thing as Jesus told us. What does love require in my circumstance? What does love require in my politics? What does love require when I go to the voting booth on Tuesday? Or what did love require when I went to the voting booth early? See, following Jesus in America adds another layer to it because we're part of a constitutional republic. We're not a democracy, we are a republic. We represent people to represent us. We don't vote 51% across the board on everything. That would be a democracy. We are not a democracy. We are a constitutional republic, a republic that is governed by a document that we call the US Constitution. So you put that layer on and here we are in 2020 living in America. How do we do good? How do we perceive good? How do we pursue good within the political realm as Jesus followers? Because one of the ways that we do good And one of the ways that we further good is by participating in the political process. This is why I did this series, because this is not the entirety of our engagement in the world, but it certainly is a part of our engagement in the world. We engage in the political process by being informed, because being informed is far better than being ignorant on any day of the week, right? So we wanna be informed whether that's a Republican or a Democrat or somewhere in the middle, we wanna be informed. We just don't wanna go through life taking for granted what the people in our party say and accept it as the gospel truth. So we wanna be informed and then we wanna be engaged. And one of the ways that we engage among many other ways to be engaged is by voting. And I don't wanna make a case for voting because it's too late if you're not ready or not registered and all of that. And, and sometimes even talking about this doesn't even seem like it's you know, Christian or spiritual or it has no place or you know, there's some many other things that we could talk about. But in 15 years of doing what I do and talking about the things that I talk about, I've really never ever just settled in to talk about this. So I told you week one that I was gonna tell you in the last week some things to think about as you consider voting whether it's now or sometime in the future. I'm not gonna tell you how to vote because who am I to tell you to do anything? Uh, I may be you know, three feet higher because I'm on a platform, but I am not three foot better than anybody. I, I have no grounds to tell you how to do or think about anything. Uh, I can tell you what the scriptures say and what Jesus did and what Jesus said. Uh, so I, I put together some principles and I put together some ideas that I, I want all of us uh, to wrestle with. I want all of us to think about because I think that this helps us get to being on the same page with Jesus. And I think this gets us to being on the same page with the scriptures. As long as you're okay with knowing that sometimes being on the same page with Jesus and being on the same page as the scriptures may not put you on the same page with a particular party or a particular tribe. And you're never gonna be able, and I'm never gonna be able to be fully on the same page as Jesus in the scripture unless I'm willing to depart from the tribal and the party line. And if you're not willing to depart from the tribal way of thinking and the party way of thinking, then, then really the rest of it, you can just, you know, just check out what's going on on Twitter uh, because it's not gonna be helpful anyway. But if you're willing to break ranks with the ideas of the people that you associate with and the people that you claim, and there's nothing wrong with associating with them or claiming them, as long as you are willing and I'm willing that when push comes to shove, that I'm willing to step away from the tribe like Jeremiah and I'm willing to stand with Jesus, which is not always the easy or the comfortable thing to do. So here's some thoughts to think about. And again, I don't have it figured out uh, and you already know that, uh, but these are some things that I've been thinking about. And these were some things that I was thinking about as I was getting ready to vote. But voting is a matter of personal 
conscience. Uh, nobody can be legalistic about voting. I think it's entirely unhelpful and uh, a decent chance of being unbiblical for anybody to say that if you don't vote this way, then you can't be a follower of Jesus. If you don't vote for this person, then you can't love Jesus, you can't believe what's true. I find that to be very dangerous, very divisive, and it goes against what Jesus said in John 17, that I pray that they might be one. Now, our conscience, our conscience is the voice of our soul echoing what's valuable to us. It's the echo of our soul that is regurgitating what we think good and wrong looks like and right and wrong looks like. And the reason that this is important is this, the political parties of men and women and candidates, both men and women, not one candidate and not one party fully represent the values and the ethics of the kingdom of God. Now, that's gotta be something that we can all just say, okay, yeah, that's true, because nobody's perfect, not one candidate, not one party, nobody's got a corner on God, and nobody's got a corner on the truth, and nobody's got a corner on Jesus. So, with that in mind, with imperfect parties and imperfect candidates, there's no such thing as a perfect vote. If you're with me, say I am. Okay, so there's no perfect party, there's no perfect candidate, so therefore, there's no such thing as a perfect vote because we're all coming from different places, we all have different backgrounds, we all have different histories, we're all at different segments of our faith journey and we're all inevitably gonna see things differently at different times in our lives. The way you saw something in your 30s may be entirely different than how you think about it in your 50s. Not so much that you were just dumb in your 30s, but you just hadn't got there yet. You were just limited, your perspective, your story, your history hadn't developed yet. You just hadn't been able to get to the place ultimately where you can see the world like you see it today. So if you're 50, if you're 60, you're 70 and the world's clear, crystal clear to you, then let up on the 20 somethings because you got about 60 years on them, pal. You, you've got about a half of a century on them. So, so don't push down on somebody at 25 what it took you to get to 52, you know, where you were at in life. So this is part of the conscience where we're not legalistic about things. We may not all prioritize things the same way because none of us have the same conscience. Now, our conscience should be informed by the scriptures, but not everybody interprets the scripture the same way. Not everybody reads the scripture the same way. We believe that truth ought to inform our conscience. We believe the scriptures and Jesus ought to inform our conscience, but there is a process to that. There is a journey to that. Now, you're not gonna be able to open up the scripture and have God tell you exactly who to vote for. If you think you can, then again, <laughs> you, you're, you're beyond me. It's not, you know, you, you can't find a name of a candidate and you can't find the name of the party. And I know you can make a case and I know you've got some logic and I know that you've got a process that got you to where you are and that's good and well. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But our conscience as Christians are tied to helping the poor, is it not? But the scripture doesn't tell us the best way to help the poor. We believe as Christians that life is right, that abortion is not right because we believe that life begins in the womb and extends all the way to the tomb. But what's the best way to go about that, addressing that horrible injustice? There can be disagreement about that. The Bible's clear on taxes, unfortunately. It says pay them, but it doesn't make a case for high taxes or low taxes or a flat tax. The Bible's clear on government is a good thing, it's an instrument of God, but it doesn't tell us whether we're supposed to be proponents of big government 
like one side is or small government like the other side claims to be. Then when you open up the scriptures, you could go to places like Genesis and you could find Joseph who was prime minister of Egypt. And this is interesting. When he was prime minister of Egypt, he, he was commissioned with saving the nation and saving surrounding peoples from the oncoming famine. There were gonna be seven good years and seven lean years. And so he came up with a plan on how to save basically the known world at that time during the seven good years. So what did he do? Joseph was evidently a little bit libertarian. So he was a proponent of the flat tax. So in Genesis, we find where Joseph instituted a 20% flat tax across the board. Didn't matter how much you made or how less you made, 20% tax across the board during the good years so that the government could become stronger and more centralized. And so he swelled up the size of government. I mean, if you would have been back then, you would have looked at you know, Joseph said, you look like a Democrat, big government, you know, high taxes, you know, big old government. And so some folks read that scripture and say, see, it was because there was a big government and because there were high taxes that people were able to be cared for and saved. And they said, that's the reason I believe in big government, high taxes and the government taking care of as many people as possible. Well, that's part of the story, but it's not all the story. Later on, that big centralized government was so big and so powerful, it was so big and so powerful, it was able to enslave an entire group of people and take away the liberty and the freedom of an entire group of people, the Jewish people. And so some folks read and say, well, <laughs> there you go. Small government's the way to go. Obviously, that's the point the scripture's making. So we can read the scripture and the scripture doesn't always tell us exactly how to go about it. Tim Keller says this, he says, most political positions are not matters of biblical command, but of practical wisdom. This does not mean that the church can never speak out on social, economic, political realities because the Bible often does. Racism is sin, violating the second of the two great commandments of Jesus to love your neighbor. The biblical commands to lift up the poor and defend the rights of the oppressed are moral imperatives for believers. For individual Christians to speak out against egregious violations of these moral requirements is not optional. However, there are many possible ways to help the poor. Should we shrink government and let private capital markets allocate resources? Should we expand the government and give the state more of the power to redistribute wealth? Or is the right path one of the many possibilities in between? The Bible does not give exact answers to these questions for every time, every place, and every culture. So we fall upon our conscience as it's been informed by scripture. Now, Paul dealt with this in Romans 14, and I wanted to spend a little extra time on this one just because it's such a big deal, especially as we move on after Tuesday and how we think about each other after Tuesday. Paul dealt with a group of people in Romans 14, a group of people who felt comfortable eating meat and a group of people who didn't feel comfortable eating meat. The Jews didn't feel comfortable eating meat. The Gentiles had no problem with eating meat because they had different histories, different stories, and had different conscience about that particular matter. And Paul's message to them in Romans 14, you go home and read it later for yourself. He says, you're free to abstain, if you're Jewish, you don't have to eat the meat. You're free to eat the meat if you're Gentiles. But the one thing you're not free to do is to condemn the other for their choice when they believe they're doing the right and the good thing. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans down in Texas, some of you know him. He, he, he wrote a book on voting, wrote a book on what, what all that looks like politically. And this is what he said about that. He said, today's body of Christ contains within it many differences as well. Depending on how a person was raised, whether with an environment of justice, injustice, family, health, family dysfunction, lack or plenty, this can affect the formation of a worldview. And much, much of that shows up in the voting booth. Yet Paul makes clear that in the issues of opinion or preference, we are not to judge one another. 
This doesn't mean that there's no right or wrong. God has set forth a standard of right and wrong, but outside of his established overarching laws, each person is free to follow his or her opinion as long as it does not disagree with or oppose God's overarching laws. When it came to eating meat, the Jews were free to abstain, the Gentiles were free to eat, yet neither was free to condemn the other for what they did. Neither the Democratic Party nor the Republican Party fully represents the values of the kingdom of God. The church represents God's kingdom party. Therefore, he says, while each person in the body of Christ is free to vote according to his or her biblically informed conscience, they are obligated to only function according to God's kingdom of agenda, keeping politics from dividing Christians along racial, cultural, social, or denominational lines keeps God's independent kingdom party strong. So, voting is a matter of personal conscience. We have the freedom to arrive at different conclusions under the banner of the scripture and following Jesus. Second thing is this, voting is an opportunity to further the most good for the most people. That, that, that's pretty simple, it's pretty straightforward. This is part of how we love our neighbor. This is why we care about more than just a handful of issues because every issue is connected to a person. Policies, laws, legislation, you know, the courts, uh, sentencing guidelines, uh, law enforcement funding, it just goes on down the line. We're to care about all of those things because all of those things impact people. And we are to vote when we vote for the good of our neighbor and to think about how we can do the most good for the most people. And that requires hard work of being informed and knowing the facts. That requires us to sit down and think about a strategy. That requires us to think about what's good for our actual neighbors. Uh, we're to be for life, that's who we are as Christians. We're to be for life for everyone, bigger life, better life for everyone as much as possible. And so we try to align ourselves with casting a vote that does the most good and brings the most life to the most people. Third thing, voting is about having a principled pragmatism. Uh, sometimes pragmatism is viewed as a bad thing, but I, I call it principled pragmatism. Uh, that you can be pragmatic uh, when you're informed by the scriptures, when you're informed by truth, and when there's not always a clear cut way forward. You can be as pragmatic and as practical as possible. Everybody wants their vote to count and make a difference. Some people, they get so dogmatic, they can never deviate and they just pull one lever and it's all they've ever pulled and it's all they'll ever pull. But that may not always be the most pragmatic way to do the most good for the most people. Uh, pragmatic people may be willing to allow status quo to exist here for a while so that some major ground can be gained over here for a season. Uh, sometimes it becomes evident that this, this issue isn't going away anytime soon, but for right now, in this moment, in this season, I can go here and I can do a lot of good for a lot of people in this moment. Now, I may not vote this way next time, but this way, I feel like I can do the most good for the most people. That's pragmatism and it's principled and it's governed by our conscience and it's governed by scripture. If a person, again, I come back to one of these issues that we hear all the time, when it comes to life and it comes to abortion, uh, people talk about, hey, I'm, I'm anti-abortion. There's people within the Christian realm who disagree about the best way forward. Is it most pragmatic to make it illegal or is it more pragmatic to make it unnecessary? And it's a great discussion. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go any further and just let you wrestle with it. There, there are people within the church who have these discussions. It's good. It sharpens us. It takes us deeper. It makes us uncomfortable. So principle pragmatism says, you know what? I'm gonna try to do the most good for the most people right now. It may not be what I do the next time. Because what we're trying to do is, as Tony Evans said, we're trying to further the rule of God through civil government. That's one of the ways that we do it. Another thing, 
Voting is informed by a hierarchy of loyalty. Not all issues are created equal. Not all issues are created equal. And I'm not gonna tell you which ones are the most important or not. I only know that Jesus said that loving your neighbor is the most important. That's at the apex of the hierarchy. So we're to never do anything that unloves anyone. So that can be difficult and that can be tricky sometimes. And, and we've got to, again, we just got to, we got to do it the best we can because sometimes there's not a great option. Sometimes there's not ever a perfect option. And sometimes it's like the less of, I don't know. Jesus, he criticized the Pharisees for tithing their spice cabinet, but neglecting the weightier matters like justice and mercy. He says, you're doing the small things and you're concentrating on all of these things, but you're, you're neglecting what's most weighty. In the Old Testament, God said, okay, if you wanna know what I require out of you, Micah 6 verse eight, I want you to act justly, love mercy and walk humbly. So apparently justice and mercy are, are weighty when it comes to God. It's part of the hierarchy. It's how we're to approach life. These issues matter most or they matter more. You've got love, you've got justice, you've got mercy. Jesus said we're to seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33. He said we're to pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Matthew 7. We read the scripture and it's clear that God cares about life and dignity for all people. He cares about justice for all people. He cares about economic justice. He cares about social justice. He cares about legal justice. God cares about mercy, extending mercy to perhaps people who don't even deserve mercy from our perspective. God appears to be against anything that suppresses or takes away life. Thus issues of poverty and violence and oppression, all of those things matter to God. And so as we think about the world around us, we develop based on the scriptures, a hierarchy of loyalty, of things that are most important, which help us begin to know how to think about the world in front of us. If this is making sense, any at all, say it is. Okay, to some of you, all right. The rest of you catch the notes from people in class tomorrow, all right? So that's the reason Christians, Christians, we should talk a lot about justice, which bothers me and chaps my cheeks that so many Christians out there are making social justice into a bad word. And there can be a whole thing about social justice about what some people mean by it. But society and justice is a God idea <laughs> and we shouldn't demonize it. Yeah, we should give clarity about what we're talking about when we talk about it, but God is for justice and God is for freedom and God is for love and God is for life and God's for all of these things. And he's for it for all people. And that's clear in the scripture. Another thing, voting is an act of responsibility. It's not an abdication of responsibility. I vote, I did vote, you'll vote. I cast my vote with some of these things in mind. And I cast my vote with a real intent and a motive behind it about what I believed I could accomplish by my vote, doing the most good for the most people right now in this place in 2020. I voted because I have ideas about how the government should operate. I voted just like you because I've got ideas about how big or how small the government should be. I voted with taxation in mind. I voted with law enforcement in mind. I voted with justice in mind. I voted with all of these things, like hopefully you will. But just because I vote for things and exercise my responsibility doesn't mean in any way that I'm not personally responsible to continue to make a difference on every other day when I'm not casting a vote. I may vote for the government to handle poverty in one way, but it does not abdicate my responsibility to be a blessing to the poor personally. 
I, I may vote because I believe that a certain policy may strengthen families, but it doesn't abdicate my personal responsibility to invest in those that are around me or in the next generation and children. It doesn't abdicate our personal responsibility. That's just the way it is. So it's the tip of my involvement, voting. It's not the depth of my involvement. And then lastly, we place our votes for candidates, but we place our hope in Jesus. And this seems like the place that we have to keep coming back to because the sky is not falling. The world is not ending, at least not for us, because there's a new world to come. The kingdom of God has not fully arrived. There is life after death. So this does not represent the end of the world if your person or your party or your viewpoint loses. We place our votes for candidates for all the reasons I talked about before, but we place our hopes in Jesus. And I think it's so Christian and cliche because we've heard it all of our lives. Wednesday morning when I wake up, if we actually know who the president is on Wednesday morning, if we actually know who controls the Senate on Wednesday morning, if we know what happened in the house and we know what happened in every, every other race, if we know on Wednesday morning, you know what? The sun will come up. God will still be on his throne. Jesus will still be Lord. Because at the end of the day, our hope is not in Washington. My hope is not in President Trump and my hope is not in a potential President Biden. It is not in the US Senate. It's not in who controls the Supreme Court. My hope is anchored to Jesus. The one who died for my sin and was buried and was raised from the dead. And when it didn't look good, and when everybody thought it was the end of everything, we read about that very early in the morning on the first day of the week, the women went to the tomb and they found that the stone had been rolled away. That Jesus who had died and been buried was gone. He was risen from the dead. He died for sins, but he'd made a way to forgive sins through his resurrection. And the empty tomb that those women looked into, that Peter and John looked into, the empty tomb that the gospels allow us to look into is God's promise that no matter what happens next week, that no matter what happens next year, for Jesus followers, the best is yet to come. The kingdom of God is inevitable. The new world to come is inescapable. There will be a day when the sun rises and it will set no more. There will be a day when death reigns no more. There will be a day when sickness will be no more, where sin will be no more, that only justice and righteousness prevail every moment, every day for all of eternity because a king sits on his throne who rules in righteousness and peace and justice and his name is Jesus, the kingdom of God is coming and we don't have to fret what happens on Wednesday. We cast our votes, that's our free will. But as Daniel said, the king of heaven is sovereign over the kingdoms of this world and he gives them to whomever he wills. I get to vote 
but only God gets to control the consequences of my vote. And on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, whoever wins, that was God's person. That was God's determined purpose. I can't lose in this election. God wins every single one of them because in the end, he's the only one who does. Heavenly Father, so this is the end of it. May have been clear, it may have not been. Could have been better. Could have been a lot of things we talked about that we didn't talk about. But I pray we'll hear what we need to hear. That we'll take away what we need to take away. We won't read into or discount, edit in or edit out. That we'll be reminded that our hope is in you. We do all the hard work on the front side as it relates to our engagement and being involved. But God, you do all the heavy lifting. You died for us. You were raised for us. You have given us the promise of a kingdom to come. And so, Father, we pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. And may it begin to come through us as we bring the kingdom of God near and as we trust that you will sweep people up into it. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, I just want us to bow our heads for just a moment. I just want you to ask, just under your own breath or in your own heart, just say, Holy Spirit, Speak to me. What do I need to hear? What do I need to know? Speak to me in this moment. Personally. Individually. Undeniably. Speak into our hearts, oh God. Encourage us to know who our hope is. Let us walk out of here today in just a moment with our heads held high, breathing in deeply, smiling and knowing the best for all of us is yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen.